0: The FT. Welcome to World Weekly with me, Ben Hall. On the show this week, we'll be looking at Turkey as Prime Minister Recep Tayyip Erdogan ends months of speculation and confirms he'll run in the country's first ever directly elected presidential contest later this summer. After a decade as Prime Minister, Mr. Erdogan has vowed to be an activist head of state who would break the grip of Turkey's old elite on his country. But his critics see his presidential ambitions as a further step towards increasingly personalised, even authoritarian rule. Joining me down the line from Turkey is Daniel Dombi, the FT's Istanbul correspondent, and from Beirut, FT columnist David Gardner. Daniel, let me start with you. Lots of other countries around the world have directly elected presidents. Why should we really worry about authoritarian drift?
1: I think there are two basic answers to that. One, I think, is history of Turkey in the last few years, and in particular, perhaps over the last 12 months. Uh, Mr. Erdogan's great task, probably in Turkish history, was to throw off the yoke of the country's military, which, uh, in alliance with other secularist parts of the country, had really uh, subverted democracy for decades. But when he did that, he didn't necessarily build equally strong institutions to balance his own power as the democratically elected representative of the people. And in particular, over the last 12 months, we've seen a series of events. Police put down to demonstrations, the movement of at least 8,000 police and thousands of judges and prosecutors to derail corruption inquiries, Twitter banned by the prime minister's personal decision. So real signs that people elsewhere in the world have seen as increasing authoritarianism and throwing the rule of law into doubt. So if one reason why people are concerned is what they see as a pre-existing trend... The other issue is just uh, the risk that with a presidency actually incarnated in the same man himself, over and above the actual law that Turkey has, there will be really almost no checks and balances left in Turkish life. Even today, people say that just about the only independent institution left in Turkey is the country's constitutional court. With the powers of nomination over judges, with the power to veto legislation, with the power to dissolve parliament, Some people think that uh, Mr Erdogan will really be unbound.
0: What's the counter-argument?
1: Well, the counter-argument is that uh, the presidency is a much less... Powerful job from the premiership. Presidents have been largely ceremonial in Turkish history. Even when the president has been a former coup leader, the former coup leader who wrote the constitution for his own use, he didn't really use the presidency in a very commandeering way. Previous powerful prime ministers have gone to the presidential uh, mansion in Cankaya in, in Ankara and found the experience a frustrating one because they neither have their hands on the levers of government in all the ministerial committees that actually run this country, nor control of the party, because under the Turkish constitution, the uh, president can't be a partisan figure, so they don't control the party list that gives immense powers of patronage. Mr. Erdogan has tried to change the constitution, indeed get a new constitution that would give him greater presidential powers, but he's failed. And if the AKP vote doesn't increase, and there are reasons to believe that it won't increase beyond the 50% or so that it logged in 2011, it may be still harder for him to get those constitutional changes.
0: David, which of these scenarios do you think is more plausible?
2: Well, I don't doubt that Erdogan is going to win. But if it goes to a second round, he's going to need Kurdish votes to get over that bar. That means that sometime between now and then, he will have had to have made significant gestures towards the Kurdish clamour for more rights to run their own affairs at a time when it looks likely that just over the border in northern Iraq, the Kurdish regional government is preparing after enlarging its territory, declare independence, and just a little bit west from there, and this has been true for a year, that the Kurds of northeast Syria, at least in three provinces, run their own affairs. So this is going to be quite tricky for him because the timing and weight of such gestures needs to be carefully calibrated. I mean, he doesn't want to stampede voters into the arms of radical nationalist Turks, and there are a lot of them about. And at the same time, he may not know how far exactly to go with the Kurds. There's no roadmap for this peace initiative that he's launched, the most far-reaching in the history of the Turkish Republic, because there's no process. The whole thing is in the heads of two somewhat messianic figures, that is to say Erdogan himself, and al Shalan, the PKK leader. So there are a number of uncertainties here, but I entirely agree with Dan. The point is that Erdogan will win the presidential election, but the AKP, his party, still has to win next year's general election. The moment that Erdogan leaves the prime minister's office and the party leadership, The ACT party will be searching for a vote winner of equal prowess to succeed him, and I don't really see how he can keep control, keep his hands on the levers of government and party in the same way that he has now, however much he talks up the latent powers in the existing presidential system. Because ultimately, his MPs and party caders are going to have to look out for themselves after he ascends the throne, as
0: it were. Dan, Mr. Erdogan has been blessed with a fairly ineffectual and and bitterly divided um, political opposition, particularly in Parliament anyway. um, Is there any sign of that changing?
1: Well, the question of the opposition is an interesting one. Traditionally, it's been fragmented. It's certainly been ineffective. On the one hand, we actually have a change here. We have a joint candidate for the two biggest opposition parties, the uh, Republican People's Party, the Traditional Secularists, uh, and the Nationalist Movement Party, uh, the Nationalists. They've chosen a figure who marks a bit of a break. His name is uh, Ekmeleddin Insanoglu, and he's a former head of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. So he's a break with the previous secularist figures that they've trotted out. Nevertheless, this is an incredibly low-profile man, and he's mounting an incredibly low-profile campaign. It's barely visible compared to the wall-to-wall coverage of Mr. Erdogan. In fact, he's even forsworn holding mass rallies. So it's unclear how much uh, mileage he's going to be making, particularly when um, there's an awful lot of pro-government press. In addition, it's not clear how... how much he's going to appeal to Turkey's alibi, that's the non-Sunni religious minority in Turkey, who feel, I think, a little bit of concern about having a figure with his uh, Islamic credentials running. There is another candidate, the third candidate, who is the Kurdish candidate, Selahattin uh, Dimirtash, and he has a base of about 6.5%. He's really running to be the kingmaker. He's really running to get their second round. And given these concerns amongst some of the traditional secularist base, particularly the Alibi's, he's really running to boost his appeal and get perhaps 10% to try and enshrine that role as a kingmaker. So in some senses... This may be a a year in which the opposition, at least the Kurdish opposition, has greater weight than before. We're seeing two experiments here, but neither really put to date uh, the election of Mr. Erdogan in doubt.
0: David, Turkey's obviously been looking on at events in Syria with great concern for the last few years, but arguably, of course, the ISIS offensive into Iraq and the turmoil there and the sense that that conflict is spreading across borders. How, how do you think that is changing the sort of political dynamics in Turkey and, and also how is it changing the way the West sees developments in Turkey?
2: If, if you were to scroll back, to about uh, 15 months ago and, and it, 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 it coincides actually with the launch of the Kurdish peace initiative by Erdogan inside Turkey he was looking to build by collaboration with the Iraqi and Syrian Turks a sort of sphere of influence a sort of sphere, fastening on the Kurds to the southern flank of the country and thereby building a sort of layer of insulation offering all the Kurds a sort of two nations one state solution with varying rights and and degrees of self-government and respecting entirely existing borders the pitch was we are all Sunnis Turks and Kurds together aren't we The layer of insulation was supposed to be against the Shiite axis running from Tehran through Baghdad, Damascus to Beirut. Now, of course, the insulation that they need is against this violent eruption of ISIS across eastern Syria and western Iraq, and the picture has changed. Erdogan will be looking out, I imagine, with some trepidation, to the possibility of blowback into Turkey from ISIS violence, which will intensify the spotlight on his particularly personalized Arab neighbors policy, and the 18 months or so that jihadis were allowed to use Turkey as a pipeline into Syria everybody in the region and the external actors such as the us and russia have all been scrambling to try and do something about this situation turkey for its part has been it seems to me reforging some sort of understanding with iran in the face of a common enemy turkey's relations with the saudis have been rock bottom but Iran has always taken great care not to attack the Saudis directly. So there may be something to rebuild there. And finally, there is the ruptured relation with Israel, which dates back to that incident of the Mavi Marmara aid convoy to Gaza, a Turkish-flagged ship that was attacked by Israeli commandos, and several Turkish citizens were killed. There is supposedly a reconciliation in the works, but we've been hearing that for really quite some time. In geopolitical terms, that actually might be secondary to to what is going on in the immediate environs of Turkey. But probably it's primary in energy terms, given the oil and gas riches discovered in the eastern Mediterranean. So there's an awful lot going on around Turkey amid this turmoil protagonised by the jihadis.
0: Dan?
1: This is an election. In normal circumstances in other countries, foreign policy would play an enormous role. Just bear in mind there are more than 80 Turks held hostage by ISIS in Iraq, that some million Syrian refugees have spilled over from the fighting in that country until Turkey. And in addition, Erdogan has a very strange situation uh, in terms of his relations with other countries. Other leaders, because of his personalized politics, really find it very difficult to talk to him. Barack Obama seems to refuse talking to him. Uh, David Cameron calls him with only a heavy heart, is very reluctant to talk to him. Benjamin Netanyahu simply can't seem to bring himself to sign the reconciliation deal with Turkey that David referred to. And yet, Turkey's strategic importance is, many people think, its get-out-of-jail card for what some people identify as Erdogan's increasing authoritarianism. Protests about the government in Turkey itself are always going to be relatively muted when Turkey seems geostrategically important. And as ISIS becomes one of the very most fundamental concerns of countries in Western Europe and beyond, what Erdogan does with his own country becomes less important.
0: Dan Dombey in Istanbul, thank you very much. And that's it for this week. My thanks to David Gardner and Daniel Dombey. Uh, World Weekly is produced by Martin Staber. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.